0: This is the Nomad Futurist podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host Nabil Mahmood from San Francisco, California. This is your co-host Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And I'm Josh Snowhorn from Austin, Texas. Josh, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today, ladies and gentlemen. This is Josh Snowhorn. He's the president and CEO for Quantum Loophole. Josh crossed paths several years ago, and a couple of things really stood out in our conversation and engagement was that you started your career as a photographer, and you're also a surfer. So you've got some connection there with with the digital media and and, and surfing. So could you share at a very high level of who you are and what you do with our audience? Sure. I think I'm. What do I do, boy? I'm a I'm an internet
1: evangelist and and a lucky dope who managed to be successful in this industry. I I, I think I've I'm a good people person and and have managed to parlay that into driving infrastructure that gives us all the things we need to use every day to work and function.
2: If, well, I could, if I can interject for a second, I am now, I've texted everybody, I am putting Lucky Dope as my new title on my business <laughs> card. I, I <laughs> love it. it. Mark that really
0: quick. So how did you get started, Josh? You, I, I believe if I remember it correctly, you were into, into photography. That was one of your passions initially.
1: Yeah, it's probably, I only went to college for about a year and I took a lot of photography classes. So that was probably my best skill coming out. I I I was oh maybe 24 years old. I had grown up in South Florida and Boca Raton mostly, and had decided to go out to Colorado. I worked at Colorado Whitewater Photography, shooting people going down the rapids. So as everybody goes ah! on their on their on their raft, I would get that perfect shot. Film runners would take the film, shooting these big multi thousand dollar huge cameras with big lenses.
2: Worked for it for the younger part of our audience. Film is something we used to use to shoot pictures on. What's that company called Kodak? I don't even know what that. Is.
1: So then I, then I worked at a ski resort and and managed to scoot my way over to Vail and live in Vail for about four years and snowboarding every day in and, and the winter and just had a great time. So that's how I got started in photography. It was, it was the way I was making a living at the time.
2: And I have you know, everyone in our, I, 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 people don't necessarily associate our industry with cool. That is it. Th- that is the definition of cool, right? And photographer, skier by night, surfer, and, and and all that. As you, when you grew up and stuff, did technology interest you? Did, did did you what did you ever see yourself as getting into technology, construction, data centers, any of that stuff? No chance. I, I grew up. Was that even a thing? I'm not even
1: sure that was a thing. I grew up in Boca Raton and in Florida and IBM, that's where they originally were building the PC. It was a super IBM town. And I remember all the, all the super spoiled nerd kids who had laptops, which like this block of a thing in high school. And they were just, they were all IBM kids who were there doing that. And and I had zero interest. I didn't send my first email until I was
2: 27 years old. So 1997 God, beat up all I, those kids, didn't you? You were the one shoving them in the lockers.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Found him. We found him, everyone.
1: (laughs) I was probably doing that in the surf break. I was one of those first peak local pain in the butts being territorial, but I I was a naive teenager at the time. so.
0: (laughs) So walk us through that journey, a surfer, a photographer. What was your lucky break? How did you even get involved in technology? It's a crazy story. So I had I was living in Vale for about oh, four years or so.
1: Eight guys to every girl couldn't take that anymore. <laughs> Decided to move down to Florida where I met my my former wife, and uh, we had gone on a ski trip out to Beaver Creek. It's a crazy story, so bear with me here. We had gone up to Beaver Creek. i been snowboarding all day. My hair, when it's curly and long, it was not gray at the time. It was about this big after wearing my snowboard. A friend of mine who is now an employee was running a restaurant at the base of Beaver Creek called Tuscanini, an Italian place. We were at the bar drinking champagne for free and eating mussels in the meantime all the pretty people from beaver creek had come in all showered and dressed in their finery and were packed around the bar waiting for dinner i was hammered by this time drinking champagne nonstop for two and a half hours i i just ate a mussel bit down and found a pearl in it took that pearl put it on the bar the pearl rolls off on the ground and i'm so i jump on the ground and i'm trying to find this thing at that very moment, my friend brings a gentleman named Michael Katz over to meet me and says, Josh, I want you to meet Michael Katz. He's the president of Terramark. And, and I'm, hi, hi, nice to meet you. I reached up from the floor to shake his hand. My hair is this big. I, I'm drunk. And I said, I got to find his pearl. And I, all he thought was, who is this crazy guy trying to find a pearl in the middle of everybody's feet on the ground? Of course, I didn't find the pearl. It was tiny. I stood up and started talking with him and For some reason, Michael saw some shining light in me and my personality. I had been retrofitting telecom hotels a little bit, working for a company called Tower Contracting, a guy I'd actually met the guy surfing. And I was six months into it. I knew just a little bit more than Michael after six months. So somehow that made me the smartest guy in the room. And lo and behold, I get down to Miami. I was already living in Boca again. And he introduced me to Manny Medina. And. And that was it.
2: I ended up being at mark for a long time. You could always be the smartest guy in the room if you have just fewer and fewer people in the room. It's just a matter of who's in that damn room. That was the dot-com <laughs>
1: bus. That's when they were laying off 30 people, 40 people at a time. I was the only guy in the other room. So that worked out well. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm I'm gonna use this line, dude, where's my pearl? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> awesome. So Terra Mark, what roughly about you said, a decade out there. And then what happened thereafter? Well,
2: before you get there, how do you even start retro? You were, as far as I remember, you were the geek that didn't send an email until you were in your late 20s. Yeah. And you moved to Vail because you were a cool photographer that wanted to ski be a ski bum. how, how where 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 in that journey does retrofitting telecom hotels come into it? How does that how how is that a skill set that you develop? Yeah. I met a gentleman
1: named Sean Marks out surfing, and and on a on a day when Nabil will know from being out in Hawaii. There's those days every once in a while when a swell comes in, and there's only eight guys out, and nobody seemed to gotten the message that a great swell came in. We were I surfed so much my arms were noodles, and I met this guy Sean out in the water. And at the time, I had been working for a friend's construction company doing business development. I was just I photography down in South Florida after leaving Dale wasn't really viable to make a living, and he said, "Oh, we're we're." Building out telecom hotels and I'm like, what's that? I didn't know what he was talking about. This was the CELAC era. This is when everybody was trying to take, take from the bells and all that fun stuff. So every little office building that had any kind of any floor loading is being retrofitted into a, a telecom building for class five switches and all that kind of fun stuff. I, I don't, I did that all six months, but I loved it. That was, that was, I found my calling. I sponged up the technology. I learned how to send email. I kind of <laughs> <thought>. <laughs> and yeah, that was it. I was actually at Terramark. I was employee number six. So that early, I was there for 11 years under the Terramark umbrella. And then Verizon bought us for 19 times EBITDA. And I was I was there for a year. With
2: quoting the papers. metrics, quoting the yeah. metrics. So it sounds like somebody got a payout.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good That's for him. It's not you. even that big now. I think, I think Switch is being purchased for 33 times. Yes. It was quite, now it's quaint. Back then it was the biggest. Could, oh, it was big gosh. shit then. Yeah. We right. were for uh-huh. years that floated along. And what's funny is Verizon bought us for the cloud and, and <laughs> then they proceeded to destroy every little bit of value that had been created. But it's a funny story. So I'll tell you about where my career went, but we were trying to buy at my next company buy the TerraMark assets against Verizon, or excuse me, against Equinix and everybody else. And I was sitting at the other side of the table with my former colleagues on the other side with Verizon, and I'm texting my CEO and other colleagues, that's true, that's not true, as they're right. talking. But the only thing they couldn't kill was Napa the Americans, the, the the facility on there, because it was a self-sustaining engine. So
2: it was right. pretty crazy. As someone who has seen some of those assets at this to this day, uh, you're better off not having uh, one. One. Some of the ones that uh, that Equinix put under its portfolio, and then subsequently, <laughs> so, then yeah. Yeah, there's bad ones. Miami, though. I drew the first line from Miami
1: um, and, and created that building. So imagine where I went from not knowing what I was doing to right. the wingding and into the. At that time, seven hundred fifty thousand square feet. It was the largest rounds up telecom building
2: in the world, and it's pretty I mean, wild. The, the amount of connectivity that goes through that building to this day is 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 enormous. And, and I think that's one of the things we always touch on as we have these conversations we're still in such such the early stage of our industry just the notion that someone with with no baseline you know kind of knowledge or frankly interest in 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 our world until you got introduced through trade into mm-hmm. into building it then become someone who can you can point to a building as you drive through Miami and say the building that houses the majority of the connectivity that comes into the US from Latin America from from South America from the Caribbean I built that yeah, and that that's an that's insane. Forget about you can have the conversation about whether there is there is worthwhile there there it's worthwhile to to complete a college degree and all that stuff. But that's tangible, real, and and it's something you can point to. And it's to this day something that I think is true about our industry that that is missing from from a lot of others. It's that tangible benefit that you can see, that fulfillment of actually building something that is functional. In everyday life, you people are making phone calls and 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 playing World of Warcraft because of what you built. Yeah, exactly. Or watching
1: adult videos that you try the Internet. We when, when it's a funny thing. So my I, I come from a very, very well-known family. I'm the only grandchild. I'm the only one in my family in 100 years not to go to Harvard. And I am the little black sheep surfer, troublemaker kid who didn't really who found my own path. And and here I am in in life. I've been more successful than a lot of my hyper educated cousins and and other family members. So it's, it's kinda, certainly the
2: thing is overthinking it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, granted, I did have a good home education, obviously, because I had well, super well educated parents. But
2: right, look, the, you know, the genes are there, right? So you're, it you don't need to go to Harvard to be
0: to be smart, right? You have that. Yes,
2: yeah, <laughs> no doubt about that. No doubt about that.
0: So share share that experience. How is it growing up in an extremely educated family and deciding not to pursue education?
1: Oh, my family's fun. so my great grandfather founded Neiman Marcus. I'm my great grandfather is Herbert Marcus, Carrie Marcus, Neiman is my great great aunt, Lawrence Marcus. One of the sons is my grandfather. So, and I'm his only grandchild. He's passed away now, but I'm I'm his only grandchild. It was, it was a funny upbringing. So I was born in Berkeley to hippie parents in, in 1970. My dad picked me up from the hospital in an Aston Martin DB5 Vantage. So they were bullshit hippie parents, but they were still hippie parents. <laughs> so I might have a picture of my mom holding Smoke up, class. Smoke them if you got them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They uh, they were hanging out with Timothy Leary. At, uh, they were doing crazy stuff. So my parents divorced when I was five and ended up living with my mom and then my dad and all that fun stuff. But in the summers my dad my dad was a uh, an artist and never really quite successful in life so I would spend my year kind of being a happy kid but I didn't have a lot and then in the summers I would go and have servants and be spoiled rotten and be driven around in a Rolls-Royce which I now drive a Rolls-Royce but that 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 was that was my upbringing it was very it was very contrasting life to to have no question about that and it, it made me I guess it made me think understand how to get to goals to achieve things if, if i look at my family a, a, as well known as they are they worked very very hard it was there was no gifts nobody just plopped things in their laps don't don't get me wrong there's always entitled family members who were gifted through inheritance things but a lot of hard-working people so it, it was a hyper-educated very successful family and it gave me the it made me know that i had it in my dna to achieve things
0: yeah. Share that story that you shared with me once about you being a differentiator, taking photographs and, and taking all the business or writing all the all, all, all the business as compared to your peers. Oh, that's funny. That's a lot. That's
1: an old story. So I worked at Sharpshooter Photography up on the ski slopes. So the people who harassed you as you got off the ski slopes and I would sit there. And and I was back and, before Vale Resorts, Vale Resorts took over all that stuff internally, oh, right? <laughs> exactly. Yep. I was on top of the mountain before they took it over and before it I, I think it became free eventually. But yeah, you know, it was still it was a tremendous business at the time. And I would sit there and I was I would there would be eight of us at the top of the gondola and I could target and identify who was gonna spend a lot of money. To the point where I don't know up to this day, if I still had the record, but my sales record was so gigantic. It was two like X what anybody would ever achieved in a seven day period of sales just, and, and I would repeatedly do this because of my ability to do that. But I would actually, I learned also that people not only could identify the, the money, the money printing families, just a few perfect shots. And there you go. And they would come back year after year as well for those four years I was there. But I also realized that if I had the biggest lens with the biggest baffle on it and the big wire coming out, the big flash didn't make any difference to my photos. I wasn't really a great photographer, but I was able to, they'd look at me and go, oh, that's the guy with a big camera. So they would go to me all the time as well.
2: So was and I, was told, a... I was told my entire life size doesn't matter. God damn it. Sorry, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: right. we all get confused. <laughs> all right. So now going back to your, you, you, you decided not to pursue school. Was there a reason for it? I was just bored. To be honest with you, I think I was too
1: big. I was too worried about being the best surfer and being cool. I think that was one factor of it. And, and school and the struggles with that kind of got in the way of, of me going out and being this competitive surfer and being cool. I had put that, made that my focus and, and my focal point. I think it was very interesting. I, I think I was around, I was probably around 24 and I was looking around at all my friends that I idolized, other surfers out in the water who were 28, 29, 30 with their, with their hot girlfriend and they were great surfers and they had this great lifestyle. And I realized that they were all stoned all the time, that their brains turned to jelly, that their girlfriends who were hot were really strippers. And that, 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 that if it in reality, is that something I really wanted to be? And I, what I realized stripper, that you really wanted to be a stripper. I would have been a great stripper. No question. I'm Jewish. What do you expect? I'm quarter yeah. Irish yeah. and three quarters Jewish. So I'm, I'd be yeah. a drunk Jewish stripper. So it'd be great. But uh, the, 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 I looked at those folks and I, and I, people I'd idolized and I realized that they were kind of going to be failures in their life. They were cutting lawns and, and cleaning pools and saving up. So they go to serve Zihuatanejo and, and Escondido in Mexico. I, I just, what am I doing with my life? That's not what I want to be. So that's when I, I made a shift in myself and then spent those next few years finding my path.
2: All right. Well, you leave. You leave TerraMark after making gobs and gobs of money. Then you go somewhere else where you're trying to buy the TerraMark, some of those TerraMark assets, understanding all of the the ins and outs. Since you're the one that built them, then what?
1: Well, I, it was it's during the well going back to the TerraMark time. I I my role was interesting. I had been made because of the dot com bust. I had become sort of a jack of all trades because we were laying off 30, 40 people at a time, and the other side of the room would be me or one other guy maybe surviving the cap with our claws out. With the biggest grounds of telecom building in the world at the time, trying to fill it up and do things. So by default, I became the interconnection guy. I became the peering guy. I sold half the content and half of the bookings every quarter for years after that. Half the bookings came through me because I had been there so early and driven it so long. Then there was no one else. No one else. The, well, of course, we got big at TerraMarket, over a thousand people, and then cloud, and we did a bunch of federal stuff. And But by running InterConnection, I was paid to do that. I my Everything I did was driven around that. I, I, I became well-known in the InterConnection industry, went to every Nanog life and death, no matter what. I founded the Global Peering Forum, along with Jay Adelson and some other folks at the time. I'm still on the board of that for my last year after 18 years. It's crazy. Just crazy looking back now. But yeah, it, Gary Wojtasik, who was the CFO at the time at Cincinnati Bell, recruited me in this Cincinnati Bell to spin out Cyrus One. They had a, less than 1% of their revenues, probably one-tenth of 1% was interconnection, and they wanted to drive a strategy to change that. So I came in, stopped my official sales role completely, and and spent six and a half years there driving that interconnection portfolio. And that that grew to be like 10% of their revenue grew, 23% year over year, just a massive enablement strategy that really drove a lot of business there. They didn't have a single content customer, not even not even Yahoo at the time or anything like that as a customer, nothing across their portfolio. And now now they they just got sold 15 billion to KKR. So that it's amazing to see how you, you can create ecosystems with the right team and the right focus and drive that. And then thereafter you went over to Edge Micro. Yep. I did edge micro for oh probably about a Less than a year, really, full-time, raised a bunch of money, tried to help make that succeed. The edge is a funny animal, whether or not it's, yeah, everybody's got their edge story. And I think it's almost like a you lump it into one big pile of, of gloop, and you hope that that's, you, you know, your, your platform's going to be successful. That, unfortunately, did not succeed. I, I stayed on as an advisor for a little and then just took a year off traveling the world, and I became a uh, a nomad. Go go figure, right? I thought you guys would that. that. So, oh, my, my God. God. Oh, I'm Impro- a
0: futurist. Yeah. I think, uh, I
1: think we found our new mascot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was it was funny. I was I the the I, the whole time I was see, meeting up with friends in the cloud industry and trying to figure out a new business idea and what I was going to do. And and then I was in at the Singapore Grand Prix, hanging out with Tunku, as, as, as print, people as, as people do who hasn't hung out at the Singapore Grand Prix in the in the paddocks that, all, as well. And Chris Street was there, who's, who's a well known guy in our industry and some other folks, but he was working for STT. At the time, I met the CEO of STT. I was hanging out with the uh, crown prince from Malaysia, Tunku Idris, who's a friend of mine from McLaren Car World. He's a big McLaren guy. And uh, and I ended up talking to Steven Miller over at STT about my business idea and other folks. And they kind of nudged me into, you should go do that and go create that. So then I decided, okay, I'm not good at being a bum and surfing all over the world, snowboarding and not doing useful things with my brain. So that's when I decided to I sold a bunch of cars and risked everything to do what I'm doing. Well, yeah. So tell us a little bit about Quantum Loophole. Quantum Loophole is an an idea that came out of 20 something years of building data centers. And what I did is I looked across the industry and thought, okay, I could go. I have the contacts in the financial sector because I used to brief all the analysts and I know I know a lot of financial world from my Terramark and Cyrus One Days. I, I had the ability to raise capital I could go and implement a business but if I go and do a business everybody else is doing it's just another rubber stamp strategy and 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 there's also the, the pain of cheap capital coming into that industry or into our industry in general a lot of infra money coming in and that meant you have a lot of upstarts and a lot of competition driving down gross EBITDA margins so do I want to chase a cap rate play and do i and do I want to try and build a team and be another
2: player that way so I thought what everyone, what, wa- everyone wants to sell to Walmart until you sell to Walmart
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very different animal. But Walmart being the Amazon of our industry, you're going to get beaten up, right? And and it's you're going to have thin margins to win that business. And they're a great company, right, to do business with. They're they're a dedicated customer, but you will feel pain in doing that business. Going to be you're not going you're not going to take them for a lot of money. So when I looked at the business, I looked at the at the elements that we need in our industry: land, energy, water, and fiber. Those are essentials. And those are not commoditized. Those are things that are either rising or are stable. So I thought, all right, how do I build a team uh, of great people in our industry who believe in the same thesis I do and go out and raise a bunch of money, find the phase one perfect location, and then scale that out around the country, and become a wholesaler to the wholesalers. So all we don't build buildings or data centers. We might build a shell, a powered shell and lease it if somebody needs to do some capital transaction, but no guts, no operations, nothing like that. The most buildings we really build are our network centers to interconnect these city-scale campuses. Our, our campus now is three and a half square miles. It's 2,164 acres, has 2,500 megawatts of power. It's a former Alcoa aluminum smelter. So it's a it's a, it's a sustainable site. And that we took a brownfield site and are reclamating it. Had all the power lines already dangling there because smelting power takes massive electricity. It's 20 miles as the crow flies from Equinix Ashburn, the center of the internet. And so- the, the, I think the Achilles heel to the site was always connectivity. You, you had a lot of fiber providers around it, but a lot of it was aerial or low strand capacity. And, and it, the Potomac is famously difficult for people to cross, just getting the permits and everything else. Nobody wants to bore through and find a cave and have the Potomac dump into a cave and disappear or whatever. That's Army Corps is very protective of that. Um, so we, but we took on that challenge and. We've just completed our first boring. Second one's going to be started here in a couple of weeks, and we'll have a 235,000-strand count-capable backbone that's 90 feet below bedrock in the Potomac River linking up our campus to the Ashburn area. So it's...
2: If uh, if 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 anybody has any interest in just really understanding the guts of what makes the internet work, Follow Josh Snowhorn on LinkedIn and look at some of these pictures of just kind of a microcosm of what has been done, but happening in this one campus and probably more capacity than the rest of the country combined in that one campus. I think of of Guantanlupo, I think of retirement community or... For a data center for, that's how, just how i envision it i don't know why i don't know why that's the first thing that, that, that comes to my mind i just picture when i used to visit my mom in boca raton the little security guard with the gate and then you just go to whichever plot is, is your data center and then this is century village i can tell what you're talking about right away <laughs> Bo- it's all about boca, De- boca rio road yeah
1: exactly <laughs> only i would know that growing up in boca right, right. Yeah. So what's what's next for Quantum Loophole? Where else are you looking? We're looking around the country. If we look at core markets, uh, we're looking at at core interconnection strategy. So you think Dallas, Chicago, we're going to be looking at how how Infomart is the center of Dallas, 350 Surmac is the center of Chicago, 11 Great Oaks is the center of Silicon Valley. And and how do we how do we support an ecosystem to still tether into that connectivity center which is Primarily driven by Equinix. Yeah, we don't compete with Equinix. We don't or compete DRT, anywhere, depending on or DRT. Yeah, depending how confused you get it. Three fifty Cermac, but like,
2: uh, it's <laughs> owned by blue, blue, blue and it goes where and it connects how. Yeah. That
1: building's mayhem, no question. But in, in looking at, at at what we do, we we don't compete with digital. We don't compete with Equinix. Don't compete with anybody. We're we're a supplier. So if I go out and can secure two or three sites in each market and maybe get anywhere between five to ten thousand acres in each of those markets in aggregate. And build the right any giant fiber ring and the right power, either tethering into the grid or even our own power plants at the scale we're talking about. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm in the 10 to 20 year planning cycles of the hyperscale industry, and we're able to support their needs and, and let them future think what they can plan and do. Not, oh, my God, what am I going to do next quarter or next year? How am I getting capacity? So that that's our goal to really change the ecosystem, how it functions. You're you're not going to change the connectivity ecosystem. I, I I'm one of the few people in the country who have started an Internet Exchange from scratch and built it. Um, Jay Adelson is another one, and I would say there's not many. So I know how hard that is, and I would never try to achieve that again. We just want to sort of support the, That's ecosystem. That to
2: the to the customers of your customers.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but um, I, I do I I do think if you look at the Internet today and and how how it was built with fiber paths with. They're airports, and those airports just aren't moving. They're are and and yeah, there's also a different a different change as well. When, when I built Nap of the Americas, transit was massively expensive. The the having a core router there and what they could sell a tank, a, a, a hundred meg port really, but a ten gig port was gigantic. Then now it's now it's either peered away or it's just you're buying specific routes on a on some of these. AS number. You're not even buying the full global internet. There's so many different plays. It's, it's become so commoditized in that regard that I don't think the peering game is something that's going to be replicated the way we did it at Napa the Americas or other things. I think now that ecosystem just Needs to be supported with mass-scale facilities. That's that's what we're helping to do. I have two questions.
2: One is, uh, why, why no love for New York? You mentioned all the other places. What did, what did New York ever do to deserve that kind of disrespect?
1: Well, come on. <laughs> Taxes. I, oh, oh, my God. <laughs> that's one that nobody likes very much. In right. Jersey, there's way too much big hair. That's a problem. Um, uh, not for me. All right.
2: You know, so you don't think you can make it happen in New York, obviously, because they're 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 fundamentally it's difficult to find where you would place that big campus. Obviously, there's some stuff happening in Orangeburg and stuff, but you need something on a scale significantly larger. That, yeah, they're, and, there's you know, people what, trying to do things around nuclear
1: plants with it, but they're too far away to really meet that latency bubble. And and if you really look at the hyperscale industry, nobody's placing giant content deployments in, in New York or New Jersey. They're just not. Not at the scale of what you're talking about in these other markets. So, and then where where do you inter New York is such an interconnection interconnection hellhole. One sixty five Palsy, sixty HUD, one eleven eight, whatever building you want to come up with that is the new something. It, it's it's messy. It's uh, and and the demand just isn't there. I had
2: facilities with Cyrus one up there, I get it. It just wasn't. So, so, so I will, I will take what you said and just say, apology accepted. And, and, and the second is you talk about You're the perfect guest to ask this question to, and you're probably not going to give me the, an answer that, that we want to hear, but you talk about tethering. Obviously you're, you're building all this fiber capacity and we might be going a little bit over the head of, 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 uh, of some of our core base of listeners, but you don't, you don't get, you don't get to talk to Josh Nohorn every day unless you get a cell phone number, in which case you probably could call them every day. The, you talk about tethering, you have in New York, you have Hellhole. hole, though it may be. The 111 eighth and the 60 Hudson. In Chicago, you have the 350 Ceramac. In LA, you have one Wilshire. In Miami, you have Napa, the Americas. In Atlanta, you have 56 Marietta. And you have the uh, Dallas has has its own crazy, crazy building. To me, it seems those buildings are such singular failure points. And by design, because that's where all of the connectivity goes through and the infrastructure that brought that connectivity there, you said, because it's an airport, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. But is there anything that can be done? And Whose responsibility is it? Is it the responsibility of the network providers? Is it the responsibility of all of us as people that 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 run facilities in our industry? How do we create a resilience? How do we harden that in the same way that that the the the, the cloud to a certain extent, Google doesn't rely on a singular data center. It's all distributed in a certain way. If sixty Hudson goes down, if somebody trips over the wrong cable in Ashburn, you have large swaths of the internet that go down. How do we stop that? What do we do, big brain, non-Harvard, but could have if you wanted to? Gosh, no uh,
1: so I guess tethering, first of all, I want to I want to answer tethering. We don't build all the way into Equinix Ashburn. We build to Leesburg what we call the edge of the Ashburn mesh. And and I say that, not being tongue-in-cheek or anything, really truly, it's a mesh. While filigree core and where the core of Equinix is, is incredibly important for interconnection. If you go back on a on Google Earth and you zoom all the way back, Jay Adelson rented a warehouse. That's what that building was originally. It wasn't even purpose built to be what it is. It's amazing, right? Um, WorldCom's headquarters was there, and May East was there, so that he was trying to create an old, an Ethernet exchange alternative to that. If you look at if you look at what hyperscalers are doing and the amount of content that they push, they are the ones who are able to drive traffic away from the core. But I, but I but I I, I don't. Think that it's necessary to remove the core. I think you 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 have a inter interreliant ecosystem of giant content buildings, all, all linking to each other with mass scale, either singular optics or DWDM between their facilities, doing the availability zone strategy. When they have to punt off traffic to an eyeball provider for specific customers, it might be that France Telecom is only sitting in Filigree Core and they push a bunch of traffic over there with waves or direct links. Until France Telecom says, wow, there's so much traffic here. It'd be more economical for me to deploy a router in one of your facilities. Your French accent I, is awful. What? Excuse me? Your French accent is awful. <laughs> I know. Isn't it terrible? <laughs> so, but driving that would be one thing. In, in Chicago, a great example is you've seen distribution out to Elk Grove Village. You see financial distribution out to Aurora, where the CME facility is. And now you've got Facebook going out to DeKalb and all these other things. The, the ecosystem is inherently and naturally stretching it out, but you can't force it. Now I'm going to go back way back in history. You started out with the May Metropolitan Air Ethernet Exchanges. Then you had Equinix and 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 and, and the Palo Alto Internet Exchange, Nap of the Americas, all these alternative exchanges to the to the original May's and the Sprint Nap, and which Sprint doesn't exist now almost, and and all the Nara so, Tech called Chicago. Event. There there's been organic migration to these new things, and and I think over time that'll happen again. But that that I wouldn't expect it to go away, those old original exchanges did. I think that you'll just have a, a a distributed mesh of the ecosystem and maybe we'll de-enable the risk of those facilities to a certain degree. So we're we're all relying upon each other in this industry. And oh, it's a, it's it's a
2: it's a mesh all right. It's our job to clean it up.
1: Yeah. And and future think what it's going to be. Is that how do you drive this? Is it energy related? Is it is it mass scale fiber related? Is it where, where do we go with all this? Latency is always going to matter. It's a distance measured to that exchange. How far away can you be? What's tolerant with optics? And where, where can we stretch this out to become different?
0: Outstanding. Well, let's switch gears just for a bit. Josh, have you ever thought about if you did not get this opportunity at Terramark, where would you be at in your life? Oh my God, I have no idea. If you didn't drop the pearl.
1: If I didn't drop the pearl, I was I was already sponging up. Telecom. So I probably would have been working for somebody somewhere retrofitting in those days, other telecom facilities. I certainly had opportunities at the time, but, but re- I recognized very quickly that TerraMark was going to be something magical. And then I had this amazing opportunity to really make something of myself and at and, and something nascent and starting. And remember, Manny Medina and Michael Katt, Manny in particular, it was a very well known Miami developer. So it wasn't. His shifting in a telecom wall, he didn't know really what he was doing. It, he, he saw the future of that. He saw the opportunity to, to really build a big business and make a lot of money and be successful at it and have fun.
0: So Terramark was a, wall, a lot of fun, probably some of the most fun I've ever had. So staying at Terramark, you said a little over 11 years. What kept you going besides the monetary element of things? It was fun. It was, it, it, what, do you, what do you do in life and you can't have joy out of it? So And, and
1: there, were, there were struggles. The dot-com time, like I said, was a big struggle. But but it really had a good time. I was because I became the face and voice of, of Terramark globally for the internet industry, I was traveling all over the world, places I'd never been. I've I've been everywhere now. And uh, able to become respected in the industry, build something from scratch, founding the Global Peering Forum. Oh my God, that was a good time. I just really had a good, a, a great fun making a great living. And, and I I just met some friends here in Austin who we were here at a conference. I've known for 20 something years and they call up, we go have a drink. I mean, I've known these people for 20 something years, all in the same industry and they're good, good friends. So yeah, that I think I get very lucky.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what would you say are some of the key lessons that you have learned through your career? Oh, I guess public
1: speaking. I always tell people, first of all, the first time you do it, you're going to, you're going to feel you're going to be in Snoopy, the teacher or something where you don't even know what you're saying. Everything goes wrong. But, you, it, but then, then. Yeah, I, I found that public speaking was was really fun for me. I really enjoyed that. I always, I would always speak publicly and only one rule I was told very early on, only talk about things that you're about. Don't ever, if somebody asks you a question and tries to suck you down the rabbit hole and you feel like you need to impress somebody or, or get on stage and talk about something you don't know about, you will get your ass handed to you because that somebody in the, especially going to NANOG, somebody will come up to a microphone and tear you up. And then another thing that never burn a bridge there, there in any, any, when you deal with industry and a lot of folks, there's always people you cross over that you don't too much, you don't get along with or They don't you, but I, I, I've really strived to never burn a bridge, always keep, keep all the doors open. And, and that has proven to be beneficial and truthful and that people come full circle. And sometimes people are in a bad way in life and you don't know that and you get grumpy about it, but they come back again and everything's fine. So I think that that's proven to be successful for me.
2: You had a broad, broad exposure in the industry based on the fact that you were such an early employee in Terramark and you just wore as many hats as you possibly could. It's rare to make that jump between kind of a tradesman, someone that's in there literally doing the construction and someone that wants to communicate and become, goes into sales and business development and then back onto the operation side, et cetera. What do you credit to that being able to, 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 to straddle that? Um.
1: I, I think I've always embraced being a nerd and I'm carrying holding a coffee cup of Geek. It's, I've never, I, I maybe it was because other than of, when you were beating up those kids in Boca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I never did that. I was just, <laughs> I would, but if they dropped in on me surfing, God help them. But the, I think because I, I was, I had this confidence of being this competitive surfer and going out that way. It's just, to, instead of to me, I don't know. Being a nerd was
2: okay; it didn't really matter. So when somebody gets easy them, to call okay. yourself a nerd when you have when you have the the surfing, the snowboarding, the photography. I'm a, proud, I'm a proud nerd. Like I
1: get out and I somebody. I was just on a panel here at Data Cloud, and somebody started asking about spallation and underground boring and nuclear stuff, and And the whole, everybody in the panel was like dumbfounded. I'm answering all the questions because I knew, I know about all this stuff. So I I just, I I spun up information. I love it. I'm thrilled about it all. I was never, I was never just, I was always a sales guy, always in some way, shape and form. My, the way I sold though was not, Hey, I'm, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, I was never wearing a tie. I wasn't going out and meeting people in our industry as the super focused sales. You're my, here's my quota to me.
2: How do I, how do I put you in a cabinet today? Yeah, I would never do that. And it, it it
1: was always evidenced by going to NANOG and people coming up and saying, hey, Josh, I really need space at Napa the Americas. Can you help me? I'm yeah, I'll take care of you. They didn't even know that I was in sales because, you know, I, I was responsible for peering and interconnection and cross-connects and the global peering forum and all that at the same time driving massive transactional business to the company. So... Uh, I think I approached it from a sense of friendship and camaraderie in the industry. The people I sold to were really my friends and they trusted me. So, and they're still my friends to this day. And it's allowed me to carry through to Cyrus One and now my new company and and be incredibly successful. So yeah, I hold true to my standards of who I
0: am and, and how I treat everybody. So looking back at time, if you were to do it all over again, would there be anything different? No, no, not really. We all
1: make our mistakes, but those mistakes make us better. I've made some incredibly terrible choices in business. (laughs) We all do. Nobody is just, oh, this is exactly what you do in your lockstep. I think uh, even when Verizon bought Terramark, I remember my grandfather was very proud of me. He's, you've really made it. You're working for a Dow 30 company now. And I was like, wow, I really made it. I'm working for a Dow 30 company now. And it was the worst year of my career. (laughs) It was (laughs) terrible. (laughs) Well,
2: yeah two hundred employees it was for everybody for for everybody listening to this, notwithstanding Josh Nohorn's grandfather's advice just avoid working for Dow thirty companies That's the only <laughs> yeah. thing.
1: but for some people, it's great for some people if if you're not a if you're not into mass, shoot from the hip in it Those companies are incredibly successful and and are there for a reason but there some people are designed to work at those kind of companies and and have incredibly successful careers and retire and support their wives and their children and their grandchildren and everything's great and some people are not meant for that and i'm absolutely positively one of those people not meant for that it, it's i uh, the 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 structure that inevitably happens with large corporations is not where i fit i'm way too futurist and and uh, and
2: uh, God, i'm using nomad and futures twi- God, i'm using great. there you there go Thank but that'll make this. Should we make that? Should we, should we add a logo? Should we add a person to our logo? I think it might have to this room right here, right in between us, right over here. Yeah. Room for another head. It's,
1: it's, it's I, I really love your name, honestly. Cause if you think about a nomad futurist, I, I am, I, I, I've done a lot of that and I think in a future sense. And, and let me explain that. So when I have a great team in my company, amazing folks, Scott Noteboom, Sylvia King, just people who are famous in this industry. And when you, when you go back in and, Inevitably, even they, as skilled as they are, will go back and say, Well, this is how I did it at Yahoo or Microsoft or Apple or so and so. And and I and I actually get upset about that. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're you're now thinking in the box. And and I want you to forget about what you did in the past. That doesn't mean a thing. I want you to think about the future. I need you to think five to ten years out. Because if we shape our business that way and if you shape your thinking that way, we're going to be ahead of everybody. And 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 what's going to happen is their clients are going to eat that up because all of a sudden now we've now achieved what they really want to achieve. But remember, even even if you take Amazon and Apple and Microsoft and Google and Facebook and all of them, they're giant companies and they're limited and they're limited really in how they can innovate because of their scale. It, it's it, even though they have a lot of money, they they still have processes and they change is never, never rapid. We're nimble. We we're able to be truly futurists and think about how we're going to do something creative for them. If we do that, and we're already doing it now, I, I argue that our business with we have no competitors. We're incredibly unique. People are pouring into our campus. We've it, we it's worked not perfectly. They're never perfect. But if we can re-
0: repeat that over and over again, my my God, we created something amazing. Absolutely. Well, welcome to Nomad Futurist. You are. <laughs> <laughs> You're officially a nomad futurist and yeah, If I could knight you, I wish there was a way. I wish. Was way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, King Philip. Yeah, uh, we, we, I need to borrow one of your shovels. One of the shovels behind, yeah. you, and then just yeah, the, virtual. I have, I'm going to have an, uh, so many I can't fit them on the walls. Up there. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, if you were <laughs> you to just give... reuse the same shovel, I thought you were about sustainability.
0: No,
1: no, no! You have they are all <laughs> engraved, and they have to stay. Oh, for
2: thinking. God's <laughs> sakes! Yeah.
0: Yeah, they're recycled, don't no? so this. Oh, knows. I'm sure. I'm sure. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to go back and 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 give yourself advice, what would that be? Mm.
1: I think I wish. I, I think I got started. I'm amazed where I am now. I'm 52, and I I think I'm still youthful. I still surf and snowboard and race cars. All the crazy stuff I do, and I still have a lot of energy besides just coffee keeping me going. But I have a lot of energy still. But I I, I do wish that I had. And grounded and listened a little bit more to my elders a little bit younger because I, I think about those, the maybe another eight or nine years I could have gained of of amazingness if I had just gone and focused and, and figured out my path. So I, I I rejected the idea of somebody telling me that I should go sell things because I'm, I'll be amazing at that. I, I viewed sales guys as used car sales guys. That's all I could think about in my head. That was the, the guy I and wants to be a used car salesman, right? So that was... Yeah, for me, I think, yeah, that's just being stubborn in, in my past. So if I did things differently, I would have just started earlier. It, it's great when I meet people in our industry, the kids coming in who don't go to college who are some a lot of them dropped out of ice and and I watch how they're they're trying to succeed in the networking industry. I can't wait to give them an opportunity. I can't wait to give these guys who are just absolutely buried in what they're doing and loving it. Wow, what a great thing. It's that age to be able what what are they gonna achieve over the next fifty, sixty years? It's crazy. <laughs>
0: How do you continue to learn? We've talked about a lot of things from networking to peering to data centers, real estate, how do you stay ahead of everything? I am a voracious reader. I probably
1: spend way too much time in front of the computer, obviously, but I I read and read and read. I watch videos. I I just sponge up information. As soon as I find one little subject that I find even slightly interesting, I, I, I engage in it, absorb it until I become an expert. And and maybe move on to the next thing from there. And it's amazing when you do those kind of things. And they they may seem tangential to our industry, but but they they become incredibly important. Quantum computing. Ooh, no, it's it's fantasy stuff. Way back when I I got called to a panel by Morgan Stanley, got invited in Toronto. I actually flew in, super gy- tired from Europe, had no idea what they were even talking about. I sit down on the panel and then I looked at the topic, and it was about quantum computing. And there were three PhDs. All CEOs of companies, all quantum physicists next to me. And I'm, holy crap, I'm Dan. Right. And, but I knew a lot about quantum computing because I had studied the heck out of it. My company named Quantum Loophole, which is a real scientific term. And they all started talking, and the whole audience was in their phones, in their laptops, not paying attention. It was a financial conference. So then I asked them, Is everybody here really looking for a short story on digital realty and Aqueducts? Do they think quantum computing is going to empty out the data centers? Boop, all their heads pop up and all they <laughs> wanted to do was hear what I had to say. So I correlated the financial industry to quantum computing and what it meant and where it's going to be and what a qubit is and how is that going to drive computational benefits or not and is in te- at that time entanglement hadn't even been proven so it, it, it was a fun it was a fun way to take some bit of information that i had studied cuz i nerded out and related to the financial industry and correlated to the benefit of everybody there so that yeah. i just I,
2: challenge information i love it i, 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 look, I think look. i think it's a thing that that is 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 not said often enough we we say it on uh, on our podcast a lot we we the, the, our industry kind of encompasses it all, right? So there's there's there are elements or there's there's a bunch of subverticals, but beyond that, there there are very few things that exist outside the realm of of tangential exposure to to the sp- the place that we build or the connectivity that we enable so it makes all the sense in the world that you can you can take that that stuff that you sponge up and and tie it back to what we're doing and 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 make someone pop their head out of their thinking that they're not listening to something that's relevant and turning it into something that's relevant yeah absolutely the creator of relevance questions. joshua yeah. Snowhorn. <laughs>
0: Well, Josh, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. This has been great. We'll have to connect and do some McLaren experience or surfing or whatever the case might be in the very near future. Done deal. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it, guys. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on and we'll all move on. That could happen next week next month or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.